Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Scuttlebutt. I'm Vic, uh, and I'm really honored uh, today to be welcoming Lieutenant Colonel David Kelly, uh, author of the book Hell in the Streets of Huseba, uh, to the show, sir. Welcome. Thank you, Vic. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for being with us uh, today. So, sir, uh, your book, you uh, wrote Hell in the Streets of Huseba. It's really a wonderful um, chronicling of the Battle Huseba, for those who aren't aware, uh, in OIF 2, for those who are keeping track, <laughs> um, 2004, for those uh, who are more pat, you know, tracking the years, um, in Al-Qaim area, uh, which is the very northwestern portion of Al-Ambar, right at the Syrian border, uh, there was a town of Huseba, and uh, some really fierce fighting occurred there. And um, but all because it was sort of uh, it preceded um, Fallujah and Ramadi, Haditha, uh, and all the stuff going on in Baghdad, we sort of have lost sight of of this battle that many uh, of our current and and recently. Uh, our, our, many of our current leaders uh, actually participated in is either company grade or field grade officers. Um, but before we get into the book, sir, which obviously we're going to dive in, um, just if you could just tell us a little bit about your story, uh, your path to the yellow footprints, because I think it's really interesting how, uh, I mean, essentially before I was even born, uh, you know, you were wearing the uniform uh, and you had, you know, participated in a, in a war. And then three decades later, here you are right back into it. So, sir, if you could just sort of as briefly or as in detail, as much detail as you want, just tell us a little bit uh, about how you came to uh, uh, wear the title Marine. Thanks, Vic. Yeah, I uh, have one of the few Marines who probably has a Vietnamese service medal and a Operation Iraqi Freedom uh, Award. Hey, uh, <laughs> uh, I... Uh, Applied to OCS after I graduated from college in 1971 uh, and uh, got my commission in uh, December of 71. Uh, then went to the basic school. Uh, back then, the basic school, uh, once a Marine officer went through that, they were qualified to be an infantry officer. And uh, there was no IOC. Wow. Yeah, you went to basic school, you were infantry, and then, then you would go to your other MOSs. And I, I, was, uh, I was done with school. Uh, high school, college, uh, basic school. Let me let me go out and do the job. So I was uh, uh, went to Okinawa. Uh, I was with uh, three four, and uh, there my uh, three four was getting ready for a float, and we were the last float off the coast of Vietnam while the conflict was still going on. Um, so we never actually went in country. Uh, did liberty calls in Hong Kong, Singapore. Uh, Taiwan, uh, trained in the Philippines, spent probably about five weeks total in the Philippines doing training. Uh, then after that tour was over, I went to Paris Island and I was a series officer for one series. And then I got lucky and got the, a, a really cushy job. I was the classification and testing officer with a great group of uh, enlisted Marines. And uh, that was my, my active duty tour. Uh, got out. Um, Spent about a year and a half just teaching and coaching track, high school track, and then uh, went back into the reserves. Uh, started with some schools and then did a bunch of uh, 
let's see, I commanded an infantry company here in Pennsylvania. Uh, then it was basically finding staff jobs, mostly at Quantico. Uh, worked at the Reserve Warrant Officer course, worked at the Reserve Command and Staff course, and then that led to uh, joining the History Division, uh, which then was at the Washington Navy. at uh, Washington, D.C., and he invited me to uh, join the unit as a field historian and uh, did that until 1999 when my time to retire came up. And uh, 2003, I met with the uh, OIC of the unit. Uh, he invited me to come back on active duty uh, and uh, asked if I was interested in going to Iraq. And as I tell people, uh, for most Marines and even the Marines that I met over there, uh, you train to do something and then you want to do it. And actually, all I had ever done was train. And so it was an opportunity to actually do the job. And uh, so 2004, I went back on active duty and uh, spent almost five months in Iraq and then was re-retired. Re <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's amazing. Um, it's really fascinating. So um, so since TBS didn't have an IOC, did they were they still um, doing the quality thirds where uh, for those of our listeners who aren't aware, uh, for Marine officers, when they're ascending through their basic officer package, um, based on your sort of linear standing grades and field and your SPCs uh, uh, evaluation, you're basically listed, you know, in order based on score. And so if you have 99 officers in a class, you have your first tier of 1 through 30, 32 second tier 33 through you know and so on um were they still doing that back then or is that is that sort of a newer convention i think that's newer when i went through it was basically uh you requested the mos's i think you got three choices and whether or not you got your your choice was based on your rank in the basic school so if somebody had an aviation contract guarantee they that's that was going to be their mos right uh, somebody wanted to be in tanks or supply or another area it depended upon where you were. So I, I guess there was a, an algorithm that they used, um, but it, it was based on your scores, where you finished in the class, whether or not you got the MOS that you really wanted. Fascinating, yeah. Um, yeah, as you know, sir, like now, uh, and I'm assuming they're still doing it, but um, yeah, there's, there, there's some uh, folks that want to, you know, think, you know, try to game the game. And, you know, if I can't be in the top 10, then I'll be, you know, Number, I'll be the first guy in the second tier. I'll get my first choice MOS sort of thing. So, huh. um, but oh, that's fascinating. And then, so uh, the draft was was still uh, ongoing Correct. then, right? Were they uh, were officers drafted, or was the was the officer corps volunteer only? No, we were draft dodgers. All the officers were draft dodgers. Yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, back then uh, the the draft didn't end until seventy three. So when I the whole time I was in college, I knew when I graduated, I'd be probably drafted. Um, and uh, I talked to the various recruiting officer, recruiting officers from uh, the Navy, the Army uh, and the Marine Corps and the Air Force. Uh, and they all had various uh, programs. But the straight up one that was uh, most direct to getting a commission was the Marine Corps. Uh, go to officer candidate school. Back then, if you didn't make it through, uh, you spent two years as an enlisted Marine. So you'd be sent down to Paris Island, start all over again with uh, um, 
recruit training and then spend your two years on active duty. Um, three years on active duty as an officer. So I thought, well, let, let, let me give it a try. Uh, you know, it's straight up, if I can do it, I'll do it. If not, uh, I, I'll be enlisted for the, for the two years. Um, and uh, yeah, so I had my, my OSA, my officer selection officer, at one point during the summer, he called my house to talk to me. And my brother answered the phone. And he said, oh yeah, he's up in Canada right now. And he said, he could, <laughs> I just went up there for a, a vacation for a week. Um, and, and, but, but he said that, that there was a silence on the other end of the line that there's, there's this, this guy he's got, he, he's got him signed. And now a week later, he's up in Canada, Yeah. Uh, but that was just, just to go to see Canada. Um, yeah. so yeah, I, I graduated in uh, May and then I went to, uh, uh, Quantico, uh, in September. So I had that summer delay where I was still had a summer job, uh, delayed going in, but, uh, and I also was, uh, went down for my draft physical. I'd gotten the notice to report to the local induction center, uh, went through the physical, but I already had my papers signed for, uh, uh, with the Marines. So I wasn't, wasn't drafted. That's hilarious. Yeah. I got to imagine that that was probably like an audible <laughs> pants shitting from your also <laughs> when you're here in Canada. That's uh, it's so funny. I never even really considered that, but like, yeah, I guess back then you would have really had to be careful of where you were going to take your vacation and like right. make it pretty explicit how long you're going to be going. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and so, uh, but then, so you would have had, obviously, uh, as a young platoon commander, then you would have had draftees uh, in your unit. Um, uh, I don't know if I had any in my my platoon or not. I think if they were at that point, if they joined the Marines, it was they joined the Marines because they were making a choice. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. right, because they were going to be drafted anyway. And, and as a high school teacher, I would tell my students, I, I taught for 41 years. I said, back then, when you were a guy uh, and you were going to high school, you had to make a decision when you graduated. Would you go to college and get a deferment? Uh, or a lot of guys back then just uh, uh, volunteered to serve because employers wouldn't hire an 18-year-old kid who might be drafted. Right. You know, mm. why train this kid? you're in the middle of a training program and then bang, he's gone. So a lot of guys, let me go in for two years, do my, do my time and, and get out. It's a whole different, different world back then with the draft. Sure. And then, um, so then, you know, you being still uh, a fairly young man, uh, you know, still, um, you know, on your first tour, then when the dra they finally abolished the draft, was there a cultural shift in the Marine Corps or like you said that it already that trend had already been you're already on the glide slope that way. So it really wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, it really wasn't. And uh, like I said, when I went to Okinawa, the last before I went there, the last Marine infantry units had been pulled out in uh, sometime in 71. Uh, so I knew there weren't any ground Marines in, in Vietnam at that point. Uh, I did find that when I uh, late years, a few years later, uh, joined the reserves. Uh, I was really impressed with the quality of the Marines that I was working with. Um, some of them had joined when the draft was still on, uh, but it was 77 when I went into the uh, reserve rifle company. And uh, most of these guys had just joined because they wanted to be Marines, but they had other obligations. Uh, so it was, there were some high quality uh, Marines that I worked with. So the draft didn't seem to affect the Marines as much or Marines that I came in contact with. Sure. Uh, that's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, and especially, for us, you know, my mom uh, is actually uh, Vietnamese, uh, and she was in Saigon uh, 
she came over in 75. Wow. So, uh, you know, interestingly, uh, I, you know, I went to Pendleton, uh, grew up in San Clemente, uh, and just, I mean, what my baseball field, I could look down and see where her old refugee camp was there in, uh, in Mateo. Wow. <laughs> um, but, um, so th- I think that's really interesting because we, uh, for us who didn't grow up with that, um, it's a, there's so much of it that has been made, you know, so the popular convention, you know, through Hollywood and television and movies and books, you know, like uh, some of the stuff that have, have has come out really put a, 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 a real microscope and a blight on the draft and, and what it did. But uh, it's interesting to hear your perspective that uh, at least towards the, the tail end of it, it really it wasn't this uh, sort of pariah that it's been made out to be in, in sort of modern understanding yeah, of it. It was just a fact of life. I mean, back then when we grew up, everybody's dad had served in World War II or Korea. And right. Something you, you said, well, that's I guess I'll be doing that when I finish school. Interesting. At least in my that's, neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, so that's so cool. Um, so then how uh, I know you'd mentioned um, your ascension to history division. Was that something that and I, I know we've talked to others, guests on our show who have had associations with history division or been a part. Uh, but from your perspective, like there's not a. Ockfield sponsor for history division at the Pentagon, right? Like in PPO. No, no, no. Like I said, for me, it was just a, a personal relationship with uh, with the uh, at the time he, we were both lieutenant colonels, but then he had gotten promoted to full colonel, and he became the OIC of the unit. And he had worked with me at uh, command and staff course, the reserve command and staff course. Uh, saw the history, uh, and it was it was just a personal thing. Just hey, Kelly, you want to join this unit? Um, and I, what is it? What do you do? I never yeah. heard of it. <laughs> and then was it like a, a hand to glove sort of thing? Like, like, this is, this is my, like, this is totally my belly wick or were there some growing pains having gone from, you know, uh, you know, primarily infantry background then into, you know, this history division. No, it, it was, uh, it was great because I had access to, uh, um, uh, resources, uh, training that we did. Uh, it, it was just really great. Uh, the, the, for the training, we would uh, uh, propose a, a research project, and some of the projects were recent events, and some of the projects, my project was Marines in the Spanish-American War. Uh, I researched that, uh, and then we also did uh, training deployments. We uh, would do our two weeks of uh, active duty. Uh, I did two weeks in Haiti, uh, two weeks in Stuttgart, Germany, uh, and then another two weeks in Stuttgart, Germany, during my five years with the unit. So we actually got to go out and do a little field history, even though there were no conflicts going on at the time. Uh, but yeah, it was just a fascinating experience. And uh, I learned a lot about research and, and writing uh, while I was there, uh, which I felt really helped me when I was deployed in 2004. Yeah, that's really great. And, and so um, other than, I guess, you know, um, being hand selected uh, by the folks at, H- at History Division, um, was there a, I guess, an academic prerequisite other than just having, say, a background in history? Um, and 
what was it like then to have to do this training um given your background in history and like did you have to relearn things or did they just sort of sharpen your tools yeah mostly sharpening the tools um it was interesting most of the uh, there were the unit was varied between 10 and 12 officers and one or two enlisted men and most of the other officers were uh, phd's mm-hmm. uh, a lot of college professors but just straight up regular marines regular marine officers am trackers infantry uh, aviation uh but when they had gotten out of act off active duty they pursued academic careers uh, and made, made no bones about what their phd meant and uh, you know looking for college uh, colleges to teach at uh, things like that so it was a i was a I had a master's degree in, in education i was kind of the dumb guy in the group uh i didn't have that phd well, so if you had amtrackers then there's no way you were the dumb guy <laughs> as as a as an amtracker i know for sure there's no way it set the bar pretty low uh, well that that's really cool um it sounds just such a wonderful thing uh and it's uh, it's an aspect of the marine corps that we're just not really all that aware of um yeah so really really great um so when you had mentioned um, in your intro that you've got the uh, Vietnam Campaign Medal and the uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom Medal, what was it like to have, you know, to be in a war zone as a young man and then, you know, on the back end of your career to be right back into it? Um, could you talk a little bit about some of the, I guess, just all of the aspects, the, 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 how war is conducted, how the Marines performed, looked, acted. Um, obviously, the, the climates are completely different. You, you could just talk a little bit. That's because it, it, it's such an interesting aspect of your story. Well, yeah. Uh, again, never having actually been in country in Vietnam, but everything we did then was to train. Uh, when our uh, amphibious readiness group, or ARG, uh, we uh, we were the ones who were going to go in if uh, a small action was needed. Uh, a battalion landing team was going to go in. We had tanks, we had helicopters, we had landing craft, um, you know, about a thousand Marines. And basically what we trained to do was if uh, a small unit needed to be evacuated from somewhere, that's what we find in, I think it was January of 73. Uh, we were on Liberty in Singapore and our Liberty was canceled. And we went back up and drilled holes in the ocean for about another five weeks. Uh, and that was a pretty intense time because it looked like that was when land grabbing was going on uh, by the North uh, it, it, in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there may have been a, a need for us to go in to, to evacuate a city or to protect an embassy or th- something like that. So that's as close as I came to actually any combat. But, you know, I knew I would be a platoon leader. I'd be there directing my my squads and working with the company commander um, right right at the end of the, the barrel there. Uh, in Iraq, uh, I was in a combat zone, but I was I wasn't ever on the front lines. But I was in camps that were uh, hit by um, uh, mortar attacks, rocket attacks, um, I guess small artillery, but probably mortar attacks. Uh, and anytime I did go out anywhere to interview Marines, uh, uh, I wasn't in charge, but I was <laughs> aware that things could happen, and I better be be ready to react. Uh, interesting. One of the um, in the book the uh, uh, the uh, convoy that we took from the train station in uh, uh, Al-Qaim up to Huseiba, a corporal was in charge of the convoy. 
and he briefed us. Uh, there were four four vehicles on the convoy. I was riding in a vehicle with the battalion commander. We were just passengers. This <laughs> yeah. corporal, this corporal, he was it was his convoy, and uh, you know he told he told everybody what we would do, immediate actions, and I was totally impressed by that. Uh, how the uh, and in my interviews too, the uh, uh, lance corporals and corporals, the uh, responsibility they had, the uh, the experiences that they had, and the uh, uh, the command of things that they had was just impressive. So I was, you know, in, in the Vietnam era, I was the guy that, that might have to do all this. In Iraq, I saw the guys who were doing it, in addition to the lieutenants and the captains, and I was just blown away by how how uh, professional they all were. Yeah, that that I, I, and that's one of the things uh, my takeaways from my experience too was just, if nothing else, to be able to see uh, these young men uh, and women. Um, just doing these really remarkable things um, for their age. You know, when I was, you know, a, the age of a corporal, mm -hmm. um, if I was even sober enough <laughs> to drive myself to class, was it a, was a, I, I considered that a win. Um, so yeah, to see them uh, perform and, and, and conduct themselves, I, I agree 100% with that, sir. Um, what about like something is, is sort of superficial, just like the equipment? Um, you know, you having trained as a platoon commander, uh, you know, with Vietnam era equipment and then to have to gear up in, in Iraq. I mean, was, was that also sort of a stark contrast? Yeah, it was. The, the I think the flak jackets we used in our time back in the early 70s, they were they must have been World War II surplus. Uh, <laughs> it didn't really do much except make you sweat. Uh, the, the helmets were the old uh, helmet liner and steel pot helmet on top. Mm -hmm. uh, Probably not much protection against anything. Um, the weapons, um, yeah, there's a lot more gear to carry. Even, even as a field historian, when I went out to to do an interview somewhere, I was, I was pretty pretty uh, weighed down with with gear that we didn't have before. Um, although I did I did notice that the uh, the helicopters looked exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, Marine Corps. Yeah, e even though I knew that they were uh, the the avionics had been been upgraded in all the helicopters, but when I First got on a helicopter uh, in country. I, this is just like at the basic school, going up the same ramp. I'm sitting on the same uncomfortable seats on the side. Uh, that hasn't changed. Uh, the tanks were impressive. The, the tanks that I saw, they that was a whole. The tanks that I remember were M60 tanks. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the the Amtraks. Uh, this is interesting uh, too. The uh, Amtraks were exactly the same as the ones that were delivered to Okinawa while I was there. Uh, when we, when I was off Vietnam, we had the LVT P5s, uh, big square things that I could never imagine how how they could still float when they got into the water. We went <laughs> off the back of it of an LST. Uh, so I saw the brand new LVT7s uh, when they were delivered delivered to Okinawa, and of course now they're going away. Um, but um, yeah, the gear was a lot, much improved, I think, overall uh, in, in Iraq compared to what I had. I was, we were World War II surplus guys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. Um, well, as we're uh, as we transition into talking about your book, I just wanted to ask you, uh, I guess, on a personal level, like, are you an avid reader uh, yourself? Uh, I read a decent amount. Uh, when I was teaching uh, during the school year, I didn't really read much because when I read, I like to just 
get into it and just kind of get right through the book. And as a teacher, uh, doing lesson plans, grading papers, uh, doing the day-to-day -day teaching stuff, really wouldn't have much time for that. Most of my reading I do in the summer. Um, yeah, I read a decent amount of uh, historical stuff, nonfiction, uh, Revolutionary War stuff. I started doing that when I was teaching because I'm from the Philadelphia area and there's so much of the revolution that took yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then um, so I've read a lot of the books about Iraq and that's one of the incentives for me to write my book. Uh, there were books written that uh, mentioned people that I had interviewed that they didn't use my interviews. Uh, and that was a motivation for me to to dig into my interviews and start getting that out. No, oh, yeah, that's um, one of the things we've talked, we've had a number of authors on the show and um, it does seem to be a reoccurring theme. And, and so I definitely want to encourage our listeners who are interested in writing um, and interested in reading. Uh, but I think that's a, a point that I definitely want to want to highlight there is that a lot of times when we read or watch or just when we uh, when we experience art in all of its various forms um, and we see content and we think, why isn't that in there? Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I really I, I really applaud uh, so that you were you know, saw that need and then and then um, used your gifts and 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 dove into this thing. Um, is there anything else that you could say? I mean, especially as uh, as as a uh, as a teacher of of young Americans, like some of the value of reading um, more than just uh, you know being able to sound smart at the you know <laughs> at the coffee table. Yeah, I, I, the the kids. Over the years that I taught, I, I didn't see them change much. Uh, kids are kids. And uh, uh, if you can break through to them and get them to get excited about what you're doing. And, and I know myself, when I was in high school, I, I, I memorized the stuff I needed to memorize and uh, mm -hmm. had some of an interest in, in some things historical. I didn't know what I was going to do when I when I graduated and went to college. Uh, and, and I understand that with kids today that, OK, I'm, I might be totally, totally psyched about this, but uh, they may not be, but at least they see that I am, and maybe someday down the road they'll they'll, they'll find. A, 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 oftentimes, I'll talk to a former student. They say, "Boy, I wish I wish I paid more attention in class. I I would have gotten so much more out of it." I said, "Well, you're you were 16. You, you weren't ready for that." <laughs> so cool. Well, sir. Uh, so yeah, your book, um, "Hell in the Streets of Huseba, um is really interesting. Um, I have so many questions, and I don't I don't want to. <laughs> um, you keep you here too long, but um, I guess to start off, so you are um, assigned. This is this is your appointed place of duty is to collect um, sort of the oral history of the battle. Hussein, is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. And so, so then, when what was sort of the process of going from? Hey, this is actually my job. To, I'm I'm going to dedicate personal time to mm -hmm. ensuring that what I did uh, as as my you know duty assignment, my billet description, actually is something that becomes part of the sort of the public consciousness of this war. Right. Well, my uh, my job and, and the job of my uh, assistant, uh, well, co-historian was Major John Piedmont, who is now a retired lieutenant colonel himself. Uh, was to go wherever we could go, get as many stories as we could get uh, at all levels, 
uh, they weren't investigations and uh, it was just we wanted to talk to Marines who had been involved in things. So uh, early on when I was deployed, I made a, a matrix of all the units that were there, where they were, and then I had to make plans to get out to these places um, and, and talk to the Marines. Um, so once the all the re, re, interviews were done and I came back to Quantico and I uh, uh, had the stuff all put away, it was uh, all recorded on CDs, uh, the uh, interview, the, the uh, outline of the interview and a photograph of the Marine. Basically, my job was done at that point. Uh, but then when I came off active duty, uh, I started listening to some of the interviews myself and doing my own transcriptions. And I, because I knew uh, at the history division, there were so many transcriptions from that year and from the year before, it would take years to transcribe them all and to make them available to researchers. Um, so I just started 2005, 2006, listening to the interviews, transcribing most of them. Uh, I used my, my field history notes. I used my uh, interview notes. Uh, and just started accumulating this until by about 2009, I had over a thousand pages of interviews done wow. with no organization. Just here's the interviews as here's the ones I did in April. Here's the ones I did in May. Here's the ones I did in June. Uh, and then by probably like 2007, 2008, I began look reading other books about the events that took place in 2004 and realized they're not using my interviews. They haven't used the interviews of Major Piedmont. They haven't used the interviews of any of the Marines who were there before me or after me. Um, and that's when I had the incentive to maybe organize these things into, into a book. I actually have five books organized. Uh, this is the first one that was published. So I pulled out all of the interviews I did in, uh, in Huseba and Al-Qaim, pulled out the most relevant ones. Some of them were you know, interesting, but it was just a routine supply sergeant telling me what he did uh, with the company, w was not involved in combat. So that, that interview didn't make it into the book. Uh, and um, then, then it, once I had that roughly organized, I tried to get publishers, uh, contacted at least a dozen publishing houses. Some replied, some didn't. Uh, and uh, for a while, nothing happened. And then finally, I did get a publisher of a military uh, interest who put me in touch with a publisher in the UK of all places. And that, that's where this book came about. Um, and uh, I'm already, I've already got the second book done. Um, and the publisher in the UK is working on it. They're working on their uh, editing end. And that book concentrates just on Fallujah, events in Fallujah in April of 2004. Um, so that's kind of the process that I went through is, uh, Look, and that at, would be the uh, the first what they called the colloquially the first battle of Fallujah, right? Correct. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. In fact, uh, that one of the things that's in the book is the uh, the Marines were frustrated when they were told to stop, but yep. they understood that it was a political decision, and that was it, it was amazing to me that how mature they all were about it. They fought there, they had lost friends there, uh, and then they were told, "Well, stop. We're going to try this political situation." Aye, right, sir. Let's let's try it. Uh, most of them felt that. Eventually, we'd have to go back in, uh, which we did in November uh, of that mm -hmm. year. But um, right. yeah, yeah, I see. Uh, and for our listeners, please, you know, write in and correct me if I'm wrong because I am often wrong. But I want to say, Sergeant Major Black, Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, was was there uh, in the first Battle of Fallujah, and he was actually my first sergeant uh, with Charlie Company Third Tracks. 
Okay. Or not, Echo Company, Third Tracks, my first company uh, with uh, as a captain. And uh, I think he, he pretty much expressed the same thing. Like, we want to keep going. Right. Uh, but as you said, Marines uh, are, if nothing else, professional. Yes. Um, and, and, and did that. But all of them had that feeling that like, well, there wouldn't be need. There shouldn't have been a need for a second because we could have kept this thing going. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's really fascinating. And congratulations to you, sir. It's interesting. Uh, we have how many of our stories of war, especially uh, the, the long war, are being published through uh, UK publishing houses. Um, huh. I wonder what that says about uh, the American market. But, um, you know, congratulations to you for sure. Uh, on doing this, what was some of the uh, feedback that you were getting from these publishing houses? Um, uh, some, was it some was there was just no feedback. We just thank you for your submission. We're not publishing this type of thing at this time. A couple were uh, actually one was the uh, Naval Institute Press. Uh, initially, I got a, a feeling that there might be an interest there, and then eventually, the uh, the uh, individual I was dealing with said, "No, we're we're not going to be publishing this type of thing right now." So that was frustrating. Um, I, I did publish this book or a version of it on Apple iBooks, uh, mm. and it was free. Um, but the the print version is much better because I had to go through more of an editing process with the uh, with the publisher. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, and and people have told me that when they tried to get a book published, uh, I did get send a couple uh, samples to uh, publishers that I thought were real publishers, and they were the um, self publisher companies. Yeah. Congratulations. Your book has been accepted. Send us a check for ten thousand dollars and and we'll we'll promote it. And okay, thank you very much, but I'm not gonna do that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a trap that uh that a lot that a lot of folks fall into for sure. It's good that you're able to sniff that out. <laughs> <laughs> um so so you'd mentioned that you have, you know, all of this just hours and hours of archival um interviews and, and history. What was it about Huseyba, uh specifically that made you want to tell this story? Uh, well, it was a s- small battle. It was uh, easy to focus on what was happening there. Most most of the fighting took place over a s- several day period, um, and uh, then there were other stories that were on the outskirts of of the the uh, the little town there. Um, and just the um, uh, to me, uh, the, the working title for my book was Lima Five is now Lima Six. Mm, yeah, um, and, and Marines understand that. But when I took that to the publisher, they said, "What does this mean?" They said, "Nobody will know what that means." So they said, Get, "Come up with some other possible titles." So I brainstormed some uh, one day a whole page full of t- possible titles for the book. Um, but uh, I, I knew that the uh, the story of the um, uh, the loss of the company commander, uh, the way that was told by the uh, <clears throat> by the executive officer, was pretty gripping. The uh, <clears throat> story by one lieutenant, Lieutenant Watson, of his actions getting wounded and then being back in action a couple days later and uh, being involved in the um, the burning up of a uh, of a building, uh, the clever way that they did that with bringing the gas cans to the roof of a building and then pouring the gas in and throwing hand grenades into the building to flush out the enemy. Um, the, the only inter- Marine I interviewed who was uh, involved in the Medal of Honor incident with uh, Corporal Dunham uh, was Lance Corporal Sanders, and his story was interesting. His whole how he was a radio operator, who he was with, and the actions that he saw when uh, Corporal Dunham um, saved the other Marines around him by throwing himself on a grenade. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I thought these are some 
and I'd heard these stories listening to uh, staff briefings at uh, at Fallujah, at Camp Fallujah, the MEF staff briefings and the uh, RCT staff briefings. And I'd make note of it, but I didn't go to investigate a story. It's when I got to a place, I interviewed the Marines who the either the OPSO or the XO or someone had sent to me who knew they had a story to tell. And sometimes I just sat there with my slack jaw uh, listening to these amazing stories by these young men. Um, so that was kind of the impetus for this uh, this book. <clears throat> Short story, easy to tell, fairly compact book. And um, hopefully the uh, uh, it's, it's from a different perspective than most histories. Uh, that's why I didn't do it all narrative. I threw in as much of their actual words as possible. And, and I used the narrative to explain to non-military people what the heck they were saying. Uh, and also the yeah. glossary in the back. I, I really appreciated that about uh, the book because I thought that this was a in very interesting choice. I'm really I'm really happy that you um, you touched on that, sir. Um, but I, I it, the way that it reads, um, you know, literally their words um, right. is really right. gripping. Um, and then when you filling in some of the context, uh, you know, even for us who who have, you know. You, you, you when it comes to context, you know, as you know, sir, I mean, especially when it comes to Ambar province as well is every AO had its own flavor, had its yeah. own, um, you know, obviously there were similarities, but just because you know, a TTP in Ramadi, worked in Ramadi does not mean it's going to work in Haditha, right. um, does not mean it's going to work in Fallujah, et cetera, et cetera, in KV, all these places. So uh, I really did appreciate your sort of you um, sort of breaking the fourth wall as the as a narrator uh, coming in and, and and providing some of that. So, but yeah, it was really compelling um, to get this story told uh, literally, not just from the POV uh, of the Marines, but using their actual words. I thought that was a really great choice. So when it comes to that, then how did you um, sort of collate it? Did you, were you kind of doing it chronologically? Like I'm gonna talk to the guys who um, were there operating in the beginning, you know, all the way through to the end, or sort of the more um, kinetic stories first, and or you know, sandwiched in some of the other. Uh, what was your thought process in, in putting the book together? It, it pretty much organized itself. The uh, the order of those interviews is the order that I met those people in. Uh, so the first person I met was the battalion commander, and that was just a lucky happenstance meeting before, as I was traveling to the uh, to the had. Uh, uh, Useba. Um, uh, the stories kind of flowed in a natural way. And and I thought, should I organize this chronologically? And then I thought, you know what? As people read this, they're going to realize, oh, this lieutenant, he's talking about this story that that sergeant talked about three sections ago. Right. You, you can, and, and it kind of creates the, the, um, uh, the environment that that's how people realize what's going on. You don't see everything. Like the usual history book, it's the omniscient writer explaining everything as it's happening, but on the ground, all that corporal sees is the the, the IED that just blew up the vehicle in front of him. Uh, yeah. And all the all the captain sees is he's he's back at the uh, uh, operations center and he's on the radio and he's trying to figure out what the heck is going on, looking at a map. And, and I thought letting it organize that way uh, tells a whole different perspective, a whole different story than than usual narrative uh, history. So it kind of organized itself. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I, I definitely I appreciated that too because of like you said is is that 
one, once you realize sort of what's going on uh, with the interviews, it does, as a reader, it forces you to pay more attention mm. to some of the things that, the, the, especially when it comes to, you know, these big sort of troops in contact sort of events. Right. right. Uh, but then also uh, the book is in conversation with itself, as you mentioned. So that was also really, uh, it was really sort of fulfilling um, to have all of these things existing uh you know, I guess, you know, if you were if you were to be in a COC, it gives you sort of that perspective of like all these things are happening all at once. Uh, and then you've got to sort of mm -hmm. piece everything together. So that was really cool. It was really engaging uh, in that way. Um, what was it like interviewing uh, these Marines? I know, you know, for one, Marines are infamous for sucking at talking about <laughs> ourselves, especially when it comes to an accomplishment like Hey, you know, tell me about Libo, you know, sit down and pack a lunch. They'll tell you all about what happened on Libo. Right. It's like, well, what happened when you got your Navy cross? Like, well, yeah, I was just doing my job, you know, like, all right. So what was that uh, process for you? Yeah, what I when I first uh, got deployed to Iraq, uh, my cohort, Ma Major Piedmont, had been there for a few weeks earlier. And I sat in on a couple of his interviews and just watched his technique again because I hadn't done it in four years by that point. Usually, uh, and you, you've seen this when you read it, uh, just get, ask a Marine to give me some background. When did you come in the Marine Corps? Um, tell me about if you were deployed last year uh, in 2003. Um, not what was the most amazing thing that ever happened to you during this deployment? It was let, let the story flow. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, looking back on it now, I think, you know, there were a couple of times I should have asked another question, but I was so busy taking notes. And then I also felt I'm just going to let them talk. Uh, and they they got very comfortable with it. And <clears throat> again, I think my background as a high school history teacher, uh, I didn't come across as this, hi, I'm a lieutenant colonel from headquarters Marine Corps, and I'm doing an investigation about this. Just right. really. I mean, and, and fortunately, the year before, in 2003, during the initial invasion, there were about 10 field historians who were attached to units. I wasn't attached to a unit, but they were attached to units. They were embedded in units, and uh, they established a good rapport with Marines. And so in 2004, when I was deployed, there were some Marines who had been interviewed the year before uh, and other people knew, oh, here's what this guy's here for. He's not, this isn't an investigation. This is for history. Uh, and I was in the book also several times, Marines would ask me what's going to happen with this interview. And I said, well, it's going to be stored. It's going to be eventually researchers are going to use it. Um, so that was the way I think to break through that is just you know, tell me why you came to the Marine Corps. I mean, there was one Marine I talked to, uh, what were you doing last year at this time? Uh, sir, I was graduated from high school. And was, two weeks later, I was at boot camp, and then I was at training at Camp Pendleton. And now I'm here. And now I'm a combat veteran. Um, you know that 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 was a way to kind of break through that. So uh, there were some some Marines. I mean, I sat there for some. It was an hour. They, they would talk. Others, it was 15 minutes, and I couldn't get anything more out of them. So uh, some of the longer ones are the ones that made it into the book because they just just had more to say. Some were some had notes. They kept journals and kept notes of what, what happened to them each day. And then some, it was just so vivid in their mind. And it only happened two weeks before the, the interview. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I thought that was a big value because, again, most of the books that I've read that have interviewed Marines, it's been phone interviews. It's been years after the events. Um, uh, and I think about these books that are written now about Vietnam and uh, that were written about World War II. You know, they interviewed a World War II vet 50 years after the event. 
Right. Don't ask me what happened last year. I'm not going to remember last year, let alone 50 years ago. Uh, right. You're in combat, and this was a, 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 an important part of your life. You, you remember, especially a week or two later. Um, so, yeah, I was uh, pleasantly surprised at how open the Marines were with me, almost, almost to a man. And then um, one of the interesting things that I took, um, having been uh, participated in OIF-1, was how different, almost to the man, their experiences were in 04, uh, and between 03 and 04. Right. Um, how many of them were like, yeah, 03 was kind of, you know, it wasn't like it is now. This is it way more gnarly. Border on the same date this year. A lot of them, it was like we we crossed into into Iraq on the exact same day that we did last year. And last year we kind of drove around for a while, and then we had a, a day or two of fighting outside of Baghdad, uh, and then we were uh, doing security patrols in towns, and then we came home and had parades and parties and celebrations for us. And uh, now it's it's straight up combat. It's every every day, every minute. Um, you have to watch out what's going on. Uh, yeah, that it, with uh, with three seven, there were probably I forget what the percentage was, but a large number of them had been in OIF one, um, and it was a whole different animal in OIF two, and they had trained to do security and stability operations primarily. Mm -hmm. They weren't training to watch for IEDs or have close combat or call in uh, airstrikes. Well, I mean they did train for it, but they didn't expect to be have to do it. So, well, that's definitely not at the level that we started to, you know, because I ended up going back uh, in 07. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it was uh, the 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 sort of the, the we got away from that block training mentality mm -hmm. uh, and really went into, uh, you know, entire, uh, what they're calling the, you know, your, your PTP or whatever, the, it was a whole deal, uh, you know, and there were, you know, as you go to a base now, you know, there's combat towns everywhere. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, we just weren't, we weren't doing that, uh, prior to really OAF two, I think was the big, okay. you know, the time period that you were there is the big eye opener, I think for everybody, um, because so much was happening mm -hmm. with any, were any of these. And I know you'd said that, like, um, you sort of handpicked a few and you'd mentioned some of the stories already, but was there any of these interviews or Marines or the stories that really stand out to you? Like. Even today, it's just sort of like an earwig. Yeah, the uh, one one interview I did with this Lieutenant Bradley Watson, he was uh, injured during a patrol and I, a, a mortar round hit near his uh, his the squad that he was with, and he was wounded in the leg. Came back into action a couple of days later. Uh, was on top of a building, and a, a mortar round hit. And oh no, it wasn't a mortar round. It was an IED that was in a pile of wood. And uh, he turned around, looked at his radio man who had an eight inch plank of wood in his neck. Um, and then he was involved in um, uh, the, uh, it wasn't the rescue, but the recovery of uh, Captain Gannon, who was killed entering a building. Uh, mm -hmm. And the, just the way he told the story uh, about what happened and the way he'd explained the, uh, the lieutenant who was already on the scene and on top of the building explaining to him, uh, you know, Watson got there. He's, he yelled up to the uh, Lieutenant Carroll, uh, where, where are the bad guys? And Carroll just stomped his foot and pointed. And they were in, in this building. And of course, people who haven't been to Iraq said, well, how do you get on top of a building and not know anybody's in it? And I said, well, they probably just climbed up the outside stairway. Or mm -hmm. they went into the building next door and just jumped across the flat roof because that's how the buildings are over there. So, you know, 
explaining that to people. Oh, okay, that's how it happened. Because normally you would think, how did this guy get on top of the building with his squad and, and didn't know there were bad guys inside of it? Well, because he didn't go up inside the building. Right. Um, and uh, th that, that whole story about uh, when the, uh, the lieutenant on the top decided to uh, uh, empty the gas cans down the, the inner stairwell of the building. Again, people that have been to Iraq know how the buildings are constructed uh, with those uh, outside stairways and inside stairways. Uh, and uh, I, I would explain to my students, I said, yeah, the ro roofs over there are flat because in the summertime, you go up on the roof to, to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. You don't have air conditioning, but it's cool because it's a desert climate. Uh, you stay in the building, you're in a you're in a brick oven. Uh, so having been there and seen that, then I think I was able to explain that. Like, okay, this is why the guy's on the building. So Watson's story was really gripping. Um, there were several others that just, uh, uh, it was the first sergeant from uh, Kilo Company, I believe it is, Sergeant Templeton. Uh, he was not involved in any of the direct fighting inside the city, but he was involved in uh, a huge uh, firefight uh, outside the city, east of the city. Uh, and his story, who's explaining they were there, they they called for a quick reaction force from battalion. Uh, battalion didn't send it. He was cursing and screaming, why aren't they sending people? Don't they know we're here? Well, they were in an area that was a radio dead zone. And mm. battalion, battalion couldn't hear what they were what they were calling for. Uh, and he found that out when he got back to, to the uh, uh, battalion headquarters that, you know, where the hell were you guys? Well, we... Here's our here's our list of what we have, and we didn't get anything from you guys. We didn't know even though you were involved in any actions out there. So there's things like that that would explain, you know, the frustration. Uh, First Sergeant Templeton, when he was carrying a uh, what he thought was a wounded Marine to a, a medevac helicopter, uh, the Marine was unconscious, but he didn't have any wounds, and they they dragged him to the first helicopter. It was an Army medevac, and the Army medevac said, "This is the security helicopter." You got to go to the other helicopter. And his description of carrying this this man, this Marine, to the other helicopter, he said it wasn't like the movies. He said, this was, I thought I was killing him by carrying him. And then after uh, they got him onto the, the helicopter, they realized he was dead. Mm -hmm. He had a bullet wound right through his head. It apparently must have cauterized. There was no blood. Um, but uh, his story was was pretty gripping that... Um, um, these the descriptions of of, get, of carrying a person. He said it's not like the movies. It's it didn't go smoothly. We kind of dropped them on the back of the helicopter. We were all exhausted. Uh, that comes through sometimes too in in many of the uh, uh, interviews. That uh, after a while they got to a point where they'd stop and they'd realize how exhausted they were, but they knew they had to keep going. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's another another story in book number two where uh, one marine says, you know, I've I've seen guys uh, worn out after a, after a hike on a Friday afternoon, but I've never seen them uh, worn out like they they were after this this afternoon here in in, the, in this town in this city, um, and realizing how the training had prepared them for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and but you know the the one thing that you are able to replicate is that adrenaline, and yeah, yeah. yeah that that will exhaust you even if you aren't doing a lot of this other stuff. I mean, that coming down off of that adrenaline rush is, mm -hmm. that's a bad day. Um, <laughs> so um, you mentioned, you know, there's so much uh, that you intentionally kept out. Were there any things that your uh, publishers had ch chiseled away even further, like things that you wanted to be in the book that just couldn't make it in? Actually, no, uh, no, no. It, was, uh, it was pretty much, you know, just smooth it out a little bit here, 
couple of misspellings, uh, maybe clean up the grammar in this sentence. Uh, pretty much that was it. One, one interesting thing, the, the cover of the book, um, and I'm, I think I mentioned it in the book, um, the cover of the book is not any Marines from Huseba. Uh, it was Marines probably in Fallujah at that time. Uh, the publisher looked through a bunch of stock pictures. They had this great picture for the cover. And I looked at it and said, well, that looks like it could have been Huseba. I know it's not, but gee, those are uniforms from the year before. <laughs> those are Marines from 2003. And I said, any Marine that looks at this book and would see that on the cover, it, it, it would flash. Wait a minute, right. this is wrong. So, uh, and, and uh, I mean, I, I contacted uh, 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 History and Museums Division down there at Quantico. They searched for pictures. There are no, comp from that, what they could tell, there are no combat pictures of the Marines who fought in Huseba in 2000, April of 2004. And no kidding. Part of it is they were busy fighting. Uh, there was no combat camera with them at that point. Mm -hmm. Every company did have digital cameras, but usually they would be used to, to uh, uh, take photographs after after action. Yeah, it's for your uh, yeah SSI, yeah, your sensitive site or SSE, the sensitive yeah. site exploitation but stuff. Very, I couldn't find any photographs, so that's the only photographs that are in the book are the ones that I took of the Marines and the cover. It looks really cool, uh, but it's not Huseba. Uh, whoever that Marine is on the cover, he's a hard charger, uh, <laughs> and he's probably ticked. He's like, yeah, I wasn't in Huseba. Well, no, you weren't, but. We just got a general picture. Now, the, the, the second book that hopefully will be coming out in the next two months, uh, Fallujah, does have uh, Marines in Fallujah, but it's a, it's a generic picture. It's not, well, I wasn't able to identify any of the Marines. And that's another thing. People just assume, oh, there's all this information. You can get all this information. The history's all out there. No, the history's not out there. That has to be collected. The mm -hmm. photographs have to be collected and organized. Um, the interviews have to be collected and organized. Uh, when, when I did come back off uh, active duty back in 2004, uh, I did give the, um, uh, the oral history section a, a list of priorities. I said, here's a, about a dozen interviews that when you start to do these, these are the ones that you should transcribe first. Uh, because I, I came back with 190 interviews. Uh, Major Piedmont came back with about 225 interviews. And from 2003, there's thousands of interviews. So which they can't do them all at once. I know it takes time. Uh, and I did give them a list. And I, again, I don't know if they did anything with it or not, but I, I know I did something with it, so. Yeah, you were, yeah, you absolutely did. And we thank you for sure. what you did with it, sir. Well, so I'm so thankful um, for you taking the time to be with us. I just have one more question for you. <laughs> What's that, sir? Uh, no, just uh, I, the only other thing I mentioned about the book I'm really proud of is the glossary. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that is great. Because I know when I was there, there were terms that were used that hadn't been used four years before. And there are probably terms now that are used that weren't used in 2004. So I thought even for a military reader, even for a Marine, um, you know, what's an HET? What's, uh, what's a 240 Golf? Uh, we had M60 machine guns when I was on active duty. I had, to, I had to learn some of these terms. And I thought when I learned the terms, uh, it's helpful for people to know the terms. Um, and when I, I've given some talks about the book and I tell them, I said, this this book is written in a foreign language. It's written in Marine talk and it's written in Marine talk specific to 2004. So you have to read it slow and you have to keep your finger in the in the glossary to make any of this make sense. 
and, and of course the acronyms which always change <laughs> oh yeah well that, that was one of the things like uh you know i was just thinking like um they're either change or they're just used in multiple ways correct so correct. Uh, you know, it's all about the context. But yeah, I think if I remember correctly, as we were working up uh, for our deployment in 07, um, we were using the the acronym HVT, high value target. Okay. Um, I guess that was a little too gnarly or maybe a little too on, on the nose. So by the time I got in country, it was HVI. So yeah, a high, high value individual. individual. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, and that, that's really good too, because like, as you said, like it sort of, it places you in the time and place. Uh, and it also goes back to the idea that like, no two AOs are the same. Correct. Um, and no, no AO is the same, you know, down the road. The, the, the war really was just this continuously evolving mm -hmm. thing, um, you know, domestically and internationally. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that as well. So you you had a you have a section in there where you talk some of your final thoughts um mm -hmm. but what what are some of your your takeaways of this um you understand that that this was a, a pretty even though it's smaller it was still pretty fierce and for the marines that were there it was every day correct um so and and for all for us at the time 2004 that that was a, a paradigm shift um mm -hmm. So yeah, what what were some of your thoughts uh, as you look back on the book, um, as you're working towards um, um, uh, you know what looks like is going to be a series mm -hmm. uh, of these types of books? Um, what are some of your thoughts about um, what he, what's here on the page, and then what what would you like for our reader for your readers to take away from it? Uh, I guess the the, the, the the kind of my motivation for the book is just to give the perspective of those Marines who were there, um, tell the story, let them tell the story. Um, and and let the reader put the various different parts of the, the story together on their own uh, without me being the uh, tell-all overall uh, narrator of, of the book. To, yeah, to get their stories out. Awesome. Well, uh, it, it, that that's definitely an aspect. And, in, 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 you know, as far as, like, um, you know, uh, you it's very unique uh, because most – of uh, authors do, you know, as in in a way, have uh, their own voice shining through, right. even if they're telling other people's stories. But here, it, it's ground truth, and so it's really it's really engaging in that way. Um, well, so what's we we talked a little bit about this uh, about the Fallujah book that <laughs> will hopefully be on the shelves soon. Um, what what's next? What else? What else are you, are you looking at to go beyond? Um, it, using the same style of, uh, it, you know, this interview uh, collection. Yeah, that would be that's that's my mo right now is uh, is is to do that. Um, yeah, the the Fallujah book is in process. A uh, couple of other proposals, books that are act partly done. It could be books if this Fallujah book sells. Uh, one would be uh, dealing with um, uh, LAVs and uh, infantry. Um, mm -hmm. and another one was, uh, aviation, just uh, aviation interviews. Uh, I have a few in, in, uh, in the Fallujah book. Uh, and at that time, aviation was, uh, rotary wing. There was the, uh, Harriers were just arriving around the time I was leaving. Uh, the only fixed wing aviation was fixed wing from, uh, either Kuwait or from, uh, ships in the, uh, in the, uh, the Persian Gulf. Yeah. The Muse that would swing through. Yeah. 
And uh, another one would be uh, Navy Medical. I've got enough interviews that could be uh, from uh, uh, commanders and captains down to uh, HM2s and HM3s. Um, so um, probably won't be a book on supply. <laughs> Although I, I did have an interview set up with the uh, FSSG commander, Major uh, General Kramlik. Uh, several times it was set up, and one, once he wasn't where I was, he was supposed to be. Another time, uh, the, the helicopter that was supposed to take me to his uh, camp uh, never showed up, uh, and so we, we we never crossed paths. So I did intend to to get their perspective, but I never never was able to do that. And uh, that's something else that comes in the book is, uh, why, you know, why didn't you interview more Marines? Well, it took a while to get to a place. Uh, it took a while to to be there. It took a while to get back, and then sometimes we made the arrangements and then uh, there was a sandstorm and the helicopters were flying that night and I wasn't on the manifest for the next night. Uh, so I had to do it all over again. Um, and then uh, one of the things that uh, uh, previous field historians had warned about in their journals was they said, you, you have to pace yourself. Uh, you know, even though you're not in combat, you're, you've got to be mentally sharp and don't let yourself get overwhelmed. There were a couple of people in 2003 had come back with tons of interviews but none of the documentation had been done. None of the organization had been done. Uh, by the time they were organizing their papers, things had, had disappeared from memory. So that was another thing is, is as I did these interviews, as soon as I got the chance, I would document everything and uh, properly record it and, and get it organized. So, okay, way off the, the question that you asked. <laughs> no, that's good. This is all, this is all, all wonderful context for sure. Uh-huh. So yeah, that's uh, so, in the future. A couple more books will come out, and uh, again, in the same style, uh, let let them tell the story. Yeah, I I love I love this. I'm really looking forward to seeing you know this entire series. Everything you 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 mentioned sounds sounds really great. Um, so while while we're waiting, uh, where can we find you? Are you on the socials? Um, do you have a website? I don't have a website yet. I do, I am on Facebook. It's uh. I think it's under David E. Kelly. That's my military uh, Facebook. Uh, also, I'm at um, uh, D.E. Kelly, USMC at gmail.com. That, that's uh, I've set that up to uh, to deal with anything dealing with the book. Uh, but uh, yeah, hopefully uh, this book does well. And uh, I, also, I was asked to submit it for the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation uh, for the book. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that, that came out of the blue about a month ago, and I thought, well, maybe that'll get it. And also, it's uh, the book is on sale at the um, uh, the Marine Corps Historical Center, the um, National Museum of the Marine Corps. Uh, that happened a few months ago, so it is on the shelves there. And it's Barnes and Noble, Amazon, uh, books available all over the place. Well, awesome, sir. Well, this was a, a real pleasure uh, having you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Uh, best of luck to you. This book is really great. Hell in the Streets of Huseba. Um, sir, thank you again for your time. Vic, thank you so much. Had a good time, sir. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> bye. Okay, bye-bye. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.